Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to a new episode of DNVGL Talks Energy. My guest today is Dr. Lawrence Jones, Vice President International Programs at Edison Electric Institute. Welcome, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Lawrence, we want to today talk about one of the important pillars of the energy transition, and this is policy. But before we do this, it would be great if you could introduce the Edison Electric Institute and yourself a bit to the audience. Sure. Well, the Edison Electric Institute is a trade association in North America, basically in the U.S. It is uh, representing all investor-owned utilities in the United States. Uh, we also have uh, an international program, which I run, and that program has about 70 international members, which are utilities with operations in about 90 countries. Uh, basically, what EEI does is we seek to provide uh, public policy leadership. Uh, we're also very much involved in providing strategic business information for our members around the world. And uh, we also convene a lot of um, strategic dialogues and events that will bring CEO or the C-suites together to talk about what's happening uh, in the industry, both uh, in the U.S., but uh, globally as well. So, Lawrence, if Thomas Edison was alive today, what would you think he would make of today's global energy sector and, and where we are going with it? I think it's a very interesting question when it comes to Edison, because for a long time, uh, as we look at this industry, Thomas Edison would come back and he would see the physical system still the same. And he would be surprised to see the amount of engagement we have from customers. But I think one other thing Edison would be surprised to see is the, the, the level to which the disagreement he had with Tesla was really not a disagreement because today the world has converged on using both AC and DC. And so uh, this idea that you had to choose one or the other from a business standpoint back in the day created this tension between Tesla and Edison. But let's remember that at the end of the day, Tesla AC dominates Edison DC also dominates, but in different ways. Uh, and so I think Edison will be surprised to see that the physics hasn't really changed. He'll probably be upset that this Tesla guy is still bugging him because, you know, you have AC still dominating. But he will also be happy to see that innovation is taking off in terms of the cost of renewable energy going down with solar prices going down. And he predicted that was going to happen to some extent. And so you will have that surprise on one hand that things have not changed when it comes to the physics of the system, more or less but that the services around the system, the regulation, the policy, the complexities, those things will, will sort of surprise him. And I think he will be happy to see us moving in the direction of transitioning the energy system, even though it's taking us 100 years, but you know, it's just, just the way it is. Lawrence, your work spans business, technology, uh, governments, and academia. How are you seeing the thinking change around the world about the energy transition and the switch to renewables? I think the in terms of the thinking around um, the energy transition, one of the things I always say is that the energy transition, albeit a global uh, in scope, everyone is talking about it. I think it's also very local in context in the sense that every country will have a different approach to how it's being handled. And so I tend to see the energy transition today in terms of the thinking is that a recognition globally that uh, the energy systems of the world have to evolve. Uh, I think the real challenge is uh, how is it going to evolve? And we see it happening, different uh, approaches in different countries, different regulatory approaches, different policy prescriptions being put in place. And I think the, the, the part that I find very fascinating 
is that everyone is trying to learn from one another, even though we know that what works in one country may not necessarily apply to another country without it being tweaked a little bit. And I think that creates a lot of interesting opportunities for policymakers, but as well as the utilities in terms of really experimenting on how we move forward. So the thinking is changing. Um, one place where I think we haven't seen a lot of change is the complete understanding of the complexity of electricity. I think there's still uh, some assumptions about what electricity is and what it isn't. And I think unless we start to see changes in terms of the perception of what electricity is all about and the value that it provides, uh, we will have a, a longer road to this energy transition because you have mixed expectations from the different stakeholder groups. And I think part of the reason is because there's not a complete understanding of the complexity behind uh, the energy transition and what it's going to bring and not bring. Mm. One thing which has definitely also changed in the last couple of years is the public awareness mm -hmm. of kind of the climate emergency ahead and especially younger generations. Mm -hmm. They kind of all have that on their agenda because it starts affecting their lives. Uh, how do you see this with regards to policy? Has that helped us already to developing policies, putting new policies in place, which mm -hmm. help us on a global level mm -hmm. to in fact transition as fast as we have to, to keep the gap as small as possible? That, that is a very interesting question from two dimensions. I think, first of all, if you think about the, the role of the public in terms of putting pressure on the policymakers, I think we're beginning to see that happen. We've seen movements in Europe and elsewhere. What concerns me, though, is that the notion, and someone talked about it here at this conference yesterday, I think it was the lady from EDF who mentioned the notion of inclusive transition. Because if you think about it, there's still about 2 billion people in the world who lack access to electricity. And for the transition to be right and fair, um, there has to be a recognition that certain parts of the world will have to accept for the greater good, maybe a lowering of their living standard for the others to see an increase in their living standard. And so whilst I think there's a public policy pressure coming from the consumers, I think there's also a responsibility that the younger generation have to recognize is that lifestyle has to also change. And what I always say to people is that um, while we recognize the importance of being very, you know, galvanizing about the climate and the change that has to happen, we have to search ourselves and see what are we doing. And if you think about the disparity in the world in terms of those who have access to electricity and those who don't, well, those who have abundance already, it's always often easier to talk about changing something when you have it in excess. But if you're in India or in Africa or other parts of the world where you have nothing, it's kind of difficult to talk about change to a cleaner pathway when you don't even have anything. And so where I think the younger generation needs to help is to set an example by saying, look, we're prepared to lower our standard of living so that the rest of the world who don't have access to electricity can be able to get cheaper renewable energy technology, for example. And until that happens, you will have this disparity in terms of those who are saying, let's change the world, let's transition an energy system. But then you have a billion people who have nothing and you telling them to, to not use you know, certain types of fuels because it's not good. So there needs to be a sort of an equality uh, around this issue of the energy transition. And I think it's very, very important that we're going to be uh, successful. Also, one last point I will make there is because if you think of demographic shift, by the year 2050, which is the number a lot of people are referring to in terms of the transition, 
Well, the vast majority of the world's population will live in regions where there is still a huge gap in terms of electricity and energy. And so by 2050, the richer countries will have a smaller population compared to those countries who are growing in uh, population. And so th there needs to be a strategy to see how do we bring the rest of the world along in a way that provides standard of living and give them a bridge so that maybe for the next 20, 30 years, they may use certain fuel sources unless, until they develop their economies to the standard where we want to uh, consider it as being part of the sort of industrialized economy. I always say that we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and people say that it's the first, second, and third, and then fourth. Well, on the globe today, you have people who are still in the first industrial revolution. And so you're talking about going to the fourth when you still have maybe 500 million or a billion people who are just in the first, right? So that transition, that disparity has to be changed if the transition is going to be successful. Right. Expanding a bit more on how we can support mm -hmm. the transition, your members in the US and non-US combined provide electricity and electricity-enabled services for about 4 billion people mm -hmm. on the planet. With consumers around the globe increasingly being aware of the climate emergency as we just established, uh, what role can you see them having in helping to drive policy change? I think there are three things that can happen. First of all, we all need to lead, lead by example, right? There has to be a first a recognition of what can I do? There's a tendency to always ask policymakers to do things, right? But I'm increasingly saying to people, before you ask someone else to do it, to make a change, to make a transition, are you going to make a personal transition yourself? So I think that's where we should first start, right? So because if you lead by example, it becomes more easier for you to put pressure on others to say, look, I'm not just saying these things. I'm actually doing it in my daily living, right? So that's the first thing that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is that people need to become more engaged. And by engaged, I'm not just talking about, you know, protesting and demonstrating. Which they're also good forms of engagement. But I think people need to get into the, the minutia of understanding the complexity of this energy transition and also understanding what it means to, to, to go from one fuel source to another. What does it mean in terms of the overall supply chain? What does it mean in terms of the total sort of an ecosystem that, that makes up this thing that we call the energy system because it's not as trivial? And then the last thing I think we need to recognize as uh, consumers is that the world today is not going to be the same as the world 30 years from now. And, and, and someone said in Singapore this week, I think it was the minister who talked about the Singaporean mentality to uh, doing something today for the next generation. Well, even if you're a young person, you can still do things today for a future generation. So, think, so thinking long term, being more uh, forward thinking in terms of what we do on a day to day basis, I think is, is critical. So those are the three things I think the consumers can do today. Hmm. Uh, latest since the UN statement about the time left to mm -hmm. really make a change. Yes. Um, how concerned are you mm. uh, that we can still make it on, on the timeline we are given? Uh, I'm very concerned. So being a father of three kids, uh, and I say kids because the oldest is eight and the, the youngest the twin boys, they're four. Um, when I look at them, I ask myself a question, and that is, uh, what is their lives going to look like in the next 25 years? And 25 years may seem long, but it's not, right? And so if they're telling us 12 years, there has to be a recognition that over the next decade, we as a global community will have to begin to have what I call really frank and candid conversation about 
what we're going to do for the next decades ahead. If you look at what's happening with regards to the frequency of uh, extreme weather events, we see wildfires, we see floods, we see all these things happening, right? And in the midst of all of that happening, we're now about to transition the energy system. So I'm a bit, I'm optimistic that I think we will get, we'll make progress. Will we reach the goal that we've set? Uh, I don't think so because it's just too many things at play, but I don't think we should give up. I think if you see utilities around the world, many of the uh, members of EEI, both in the U.S. and around the world, are already making steps towards cleaning up their uh, the supply source. But I think it's not just the energy system that has to transform. We have to look at holistically other systems, transportation, agriculture. Um, you know, there's a tendency to always say, well, if we can only fix the energy system, we can tackle the climate the climate crisis. And I think it's, a, it's, it's not the right approach. I think we need to take a holistic approach and say, okay, where on the entire uh, set of systems we have, where can we make changes in all of these systems? So transportation, building sector, building is a huge, uh, you know, part of this whole thing, agriculture. So there, we need to take a holistic approach. And if we do that, I think the chances of us making the dent it's much, much higher than if we only focus on one sector and say, let's let's just fix fix the utility sector. Because the utilities can clean up as much as they want. If the transportation sector hasn't cleaned up, you know, it is what it is. It's same with the building sector, manufacturing. So we need to take a holistic approach, which comes back to public policy, because for a long time, we continue to make public policy on a silo basis. So you have energy policy, water policy, transportation policy, and I'm always saying, well, if these systems are all interconnected, why not try and create a holistic policy framework? It's not easy, but that's yeah. that's what I think needs to happen. Right. Lawrence, I'm going to read a quote of one of your, your speeches which you have held around the world. And, and that is, uh, we should simplify the message and story of energy for customers and other stakeholders. We must neither trivialize the problem nor miss the opportunities of electrification. Why is it important to you to keep repeating that message? I, I I think it's important for me to keep repeating it and we should all keep repeating it because if you think about the energy system, it's very complex. And what has happened is we've reduced it to a switch. I gave a talk in Australia, actually New Zealand, uh, a year ago, where I talk about what I call the invisible innovation because people will say the energy sector is not innovative. Utilities are not innovative. And what I said is not true. The thing is what they do innovate is you can't see it. So for example, in this building, the lights are on. Well, if the utility in, this, in, in Singapore is doing a lot of work to keep the reliability at the same level, you as a customer will not see any change in that light bulb. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of innovation, invention that's being done. To keep the lights on every day, there's a, a lot of decision-making on a real-time basis to keep the lights on. Because we've simplified electricity to just a switch, people then take it for granted and say, oh, just switch it on. And so we need to remind people that yes, it's just a switch, but behind that switch, there's a lot of complexity. And in fact, I've always said that in the next decade, one of the biggest jobs of electric companies and even companies like DNV would be to understand how to manage complexity. Because we are layering on top of systems and systems. You have the energy system today, which Edison will still recognize. And now you have all these IT systems you're putting on top of it. 
where do you have the human capacity to understand this amount of complexity? And so we we should certainly try to talk about the energy story like the minister did yesterday in Singapore so that people can understand from a consumer standpoint. But we should not simplify because if you simplify, people will take it for granted. And, and, and it would be a disservice if we if we if we did that. So I, I, I've been saying this now for the last couple of years and people say, why you keep saying don't trivialize the problem? I said, because if you trivialize the problem, you can't come back and make major investments in infrastructure because people are like, if I just switch the light on, it comes on. Well, there's something called circuit breaker. There's something called transmission lines, distribution lines. These physical systems are still necessary to keep the lights on. In DNVGL's Energy Transition Outlook 2019, we talk about the world needing extraordinary policy action if we are to close the emissions gap by 2030. Based on your work across the globe, are the collective of industry, customers, and most importantly, policymakers, ready to introduce this level of policy action, replacing short-term with long-term thinking and pragmatism? First of all, I must commend DNVGL for your uh, your um, transformation report. I, I was privy to the year, by the when I was in Iceland, and I, I downloaded it and I read it, and it was actually very... Very good. So congratulations for that. Um, in terms of the public policy and and the, the, what's happening in that in that light, I, I think we are beginning to see different policy experimentation around the world. Right. Some countries are taking an approach that will accelerate the investments in renewables. Some are taking uh, uh, approaches that will attract more capital. Um, I, so I think the thing that has to happen along with policy, which I think investors, uh, because it's going to take a lot of money to transition this energy system, right? And attracting capital requires stability. If there's one thing policymakers around the world are beginning to recognize is that you have to allow the public policy to work. You have to have what I call patient regulatory mindset. You can't you can keep changing. You can't rush. And so we're beginning to see some places around the world uh, where we've seen successes in terms of being patient. Uh, and both uh, in the U.S., there are certain states that have taken certain steps to accelerate uh, the transition. But I think one of the concerns we're beginning to see is that um, I always say there's sometimes a disconnect between regulation and public policy. And by that, I mean, you can have a very good regulatory framework, but if the policy makers keep intervening, then the system is not going to work. So you have two signals you send into investors. On the one hand, you say, yes, you know, here's the name of the game. These are the rules of the road. And then you keep changing the rules of the road as the game moves on. And so we need to be very careful that as we bring these new regulatory and policy strategies to accelerate the energy transition, we should have patience to let it work and not not quickly keep changing them because it just sends the wrong signal to the investor community and it also sends the wrong signal uh, to the operators of the of these systems because you just don't know what the rules are. So for renewables to work, for example, I remembered um, uh, about 20 years ago in Sweden when we were talking about the offshore wind, a lot of people said it wouldn't work. Eventually it did work and the reason why, because Denmark, uh, give them credit, they were very consistent when they put in their public policy for becoming the world leader in renewables. They didn't change it every time there was a change of government. In fact, if I remember, they had several different governments in Denmark, but the public policy objective never changed. It stayed the same. And that was what triggered. And I think if more and more countries can adapt that ability to be patient with the regulation and the policy, 
this industry transition will occur, will occur much faster. What is the Edison Electric Institute doing to harness the new collective focus on climate emergency to progress the energy transition? I think across the globe, if you look at all the uh, most of our members, uh, they're all taking steps to really um, uh, put in place measures to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we see it happening with utilities in the U.S., or electric companies, as we like to call them in the U.S., as well as in Europe. Uh, I think our members and our partners around the world are also trying to uh, take a very active role in terms of our engagement, both at the uh, sub-national level or when it comes to, uh, you know, things like COP21 or COP22, we, we participate in these uh, these uh, dialogues. The other thing we're doing is really focusing very, very keenly on the industry story. Uh, this is one of the areas where EEI has made a lot of investment in terms of working with our members uh, to be able to tell the story because we recognized several years ago that there's a lot that we do as an industry but we are not good at telling stories. And so, uh, in fact, um, three years ago, uh, I believe three or four years ago, the EI launched something called the Lexicon Project, where we began to redefine how we'll talk about energy or electricity with our customers. And so focusing on communication, telling stories, but then customer centricity, making sure that you put the customer in the center uh, of everything that we're doing. By doing so, we'll be able to really take advantage of the urgency and contribute to moving the planet to this uh, new energy world. Lawrence, I have one last question for you because you made me very curious bringing <laughs> a book to the title. So what is that about? So so the book, the title of this book is called Persuasion. Uh, and the subtext in the book, or the subtitle is, how do you convince others when facts don't seem to matter? Right? Uh, we live in interesting times. And as we talk about the energy transition, there are a lot of facts behind it. In fact, you guys at DMVGL put out your, your sort of a, this fact book that talks about energy in different numbers, right? But if you're talking to people and bringing all the facts and you're not getting them to move, what else do you do? And, and as I'm reading this book, because it talks about empathy, it talks about emotion, it talks about storytelling. One of the places where our industry struggles across the world, I've seen it in so many different countries, is that we're very fact-based. We have all the facts but we don't have the emotion. We don't have the empathy. We can't tell the story. And, and that's where I think we as an industry, if we're gonna be successful in the energy transition, we have to be able to tell the story in a way that is not just fact-based, but that's also empathetic in that people understand the emotions behind it. Because I, I, I always say that if you, if, you, if you live in Africa and the only, uh, the only light you have in a, in a clinic is, your, is the light from a cell phone and you're gonna have a baby, and the doctor cannot even find your vein to give you an IV, but they have to use the cell phone to get light. You have a different perception, reaction to energy than you if you live in Sweden or Norway or, or you know, Germany, wherever, right? So I think we need to tell the story about energy transition in a way that is empathetic, not just fact-based. Because right now, people don't really care about facts when it comes to these transition. They just want the result. And so that's why I'm reading this book. Persuasion, I highly recommend it by Lee Carter. I don't know who he is. I don't know who she is. It could be a she, but I think it's a very good book. Thank you very much for sharing this with us, Lawrence. And thank also you. thank you very much for the great insights you've given us in this episode. And to the listeners, thank you very much for listening in. That was Dr. Lawrence Jones, Vice President, International Programs at Edison Electric Institute. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast. 
To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com/talksenergy.